Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 47 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Last week we taped a special episode about the Beeman case with David Shapiro, which is finally going back for trial, or, or at least that's where it seems to be headed. Today, back to two arguments, Pat, given a quiet week last week in oral arguments. We're trying to line up additional special episodes as well, and we'll continue to do so throughout the summer. The first case today is Silver versus Hornick an Illinois First District case involving jurisdiction over a trustee of a trust. The second case today is Banks versus Advocate Health, another First District case heard recently involving questions of cross-examination of a witness regarding fraudulent tax returns of the plaintiff uh, or the Allegedly. Decedent. Yeah, allegedly. Allegedly. And, and a wrongful death case. And the good news is, is that the first appellate uh, oral argument uh, tapings seem to that they seem to have fixed their audio issues, so that's good news. There's no longer any skipping or any of that. So with that, let's get right to our first case, Silver. Questions raised here is where is their personal jurisdiction over the trustees of a trust? How does the newly adopted Illinois Trust Code play into the analysis? These are among the questions the Illinois First Court, appellate, first appellate court, uh, first district will address when it decides Silver versus Hornick that was recently argued. This case presents interesting questions about where the situs of a trust is. Despite, despite being in the trust context, the thrust of the argument focused on whether there was any conduct directed toward Illinois that would confer jurisdiction. There's also an issue of designation of situs of the trust, given that the law of Illinois is a controlling law under the instrument and a provision that allows for the situs to be changed. This latter provision was argued by the appellant to be changed from where uh, uh, to, be, to be changed by uh, the appellant uh, to be Colorado or uh, Florida and changed from where, if not Illinois. So, Pat, tell us about the oral argument in this interesting uh, jurisdiction case. Thanks, Dan. And, you know, I thought we were going to have more personal jurisdiction cases when we started doing this podcast. And I think this might be one of the first ones we've done. And it's in the trust context, which is a bit unusual. Um, so they're going to fight over where they're going to litigate, whether the trust, I assume the issue is, uh, some sort of mismanagement. There was some discussion about that, uh, that somebody didn't properly manage the assets and hurt some beneficiaries. What it seems that's what the dispute's about. Um, I was also surprised to hear that the, there was a big, I didn't pay much attention to it, but because it's not my area of practice, but it certainly occurred. I, I knew that it occurred is that there was a substantial overhaul of the Illinois Trust Code in 2020. And this dispute seems to have long predated that amendment. Yet Good. that's the code they're using. Now, perhaps the code was apply, you know, was written in a way that's retroactive. It's retroactive it's an a, in its application. But I thought that was also an interesting dimension that we're talking about a, a code section that deals with, among other things, where you sue on these kinds of things on a statute that didn't exist or at least hadn't been amended in its current form 
at the time that the dispute arose. So I, I thought that was a bit interesting with regards to retroactivity, retroactive application or prospective application. We may learn more about that in the opinion. So this is a case where at the beginning, everything was in Florida. And then a beneficiary moved to Florida. The trustee moved to Colorado. Another beneficiary lived in Oregon, but now lives in Washington state. And the argument of the appellee is none of this is in uh, Illinois. So, and we didn't direct anything to Illinois. Therefore, you can't sue us in Illinois. Um, okay, it, maybe. I thought the argument that was most persuasive was the situs of the trust had to be fixed at the time of the settling of the of the trust, and it seemed quite clear that that was Illinois. And yeah. if it had to be changed, uh, Justice Mikva, who was the only justice that was active in any questioning at the argument uh, of the three justices on the panel, uh, was like, well, it didn't move when the beneficiary moved to Florida, and it didn't move when the trustee went to Colorado. And the appellant's like, well, yeah, but you had to give notice under the trust instrument in order for the situs to change. And that wasn't done. And so if it wasn't done, and the only place it possibly could have been uh, located at the time of the settling of the trust is in Illinois, then it's got to be Illinois uh, as the designation. Now, there wasn't an affirmative designation, which is required under the trust code, but oh, the the statute or the 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 the, the instrument seems to spell out that if you want to move it, then you got to tell everybody, and that doesn't seem to have been done. Um, I. I th- but we come back to this basic concept that he was alleging both general uh, and specific personal jurisdiction. Uh, but it seemed clear that they were focusing on specific jurisdiction of, of particular acts taken in Illinois uh, and directed towards Illinois. So you get all the discussion about uh, the Burger King case and, uh, you know, is it fair to believe you're going to be hailed into court? in the forum jurisdiction, the same kinds of analysis that you do in every personal jurisdiction case, same types of due process concerns are present here. And I I don't know why you wouldn't expect to be hailed into court in Illinois, (laughs) but apparently the uh, trial court disagreed. Uh, It's a de novo standard of review um, on a motion like this. And I also, Dan, wonder how they're really fighting over jurisdiction here. And one has right. to wonder why. Uh, is it really that important? I mean, usually you fight over jurisdiction in tort cases because you really don't like the jury pool you're going to get. Right. I, I don't think there's, to the extent that there's a jury claim here, and I'm not sure there is. I doubt there is. Um, I don't think there's a political valence to jurors in trust cases. <laughs> I don't think that they really no. care, uh, have any particular biases one way or the other that would make you want to um, uh, litigate or not litigate in Illinois over any other state. Illinois law controls. There didn't seem to be a dispute about that. It, it, there was multiple references to one of the uh, counsel for Appalese. His partner was intimately involved in the drafting and handling of this trust. So he's a witness, and it seems that this lawyer is here in Illinois. Um, yeah. It may be that, sure, there's personal jurisdiction. There's no personal jurisdiction in Illinois, but is it is it uh, if it goes to some other place? Is it convenient to litigate in that other place, which it seems it's going to be Colorado if it's not Illinois, where the trustee is now located, 
and where certain uh, tax documents apparently hadn't been filed or something. Um, It's very unclear why it would go there, but that seems to be, I'm sorry, it's clear why it would go there, but it doesn't seem to be particularly convenient to go there. Uh, So there may be other bases to move this thing back to Illinois if they really want to spend the trust money fighting over that. Dan, what were your thoughts? Same thoughts, Pat. There, there's a lot of talk about the attorney and the preparation and administration as the uh, executor, I think, uh, the lawyer may, may have been. Also, the accounting was in Illinois. The, the one thing that I kept thinking about is perhaps there's some difference in estate taxes depending on where the trust is located. You know, Illinois has like a 4%, and so maybe Colorado doesn't have one or it has a different one. Or There, there must have been some reason, like you said, it wasn't clear from the oral argument why this fight's even taking place. Like you said, I don't think juries are going to be more appreciative or understanding somewhere in Colorado or Florida or Washington or Illinois. I generally get the sense that jurors are just generally not going to like the rich people. Right. Uh, that That's to me what I would expect if the jurors had any, any dog in the fight, it would be what you people are fighting over what now? Um, right. So exactly. they're not going to like that either way. Right. So yeah, it's, it's 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 unclear, and hopefully, from the opinion, like you said, we'll get a little more flavor of the applicability of the Trust Act, and also maybe a, a little bit more facts, like we often do, about some of what the underlying arguments are really about here that weren't covered in oral argument. Yeah, it, it, but it, it's a good lesson about remembering that you have the the directing of activities towards the the chosen forum state is the touchstone really of at least specific jurisdiction to the extent that the person is at home and generally subject to personal jurisdiction um, of the uh, of the state. There also was mention of the long arm statute and that's why the situs of the trust matters and and the the under the long arm statute, the state long arm statute, it would have uh, the situs of the trust, it would have um, Jurisdiction. Illinois would have jurisdiction. That's why there's this big fight over where where that is, and whether it moved. Um, I'll be interested to see because Ju- Justice Mikva at least didn't seem convinced at all that the tr- that the situs of the trust had b- had not been moved. It'll be interesting to see um, what uh, how that gets dealt with if they find that personal jurisdiction doesn't lie in Illinois because there wasn't really a question of counsel for the appellees that they argued they split their time um, as to, well, what do you say about the site as having been moved? There were no questions about that. And I, that was one of the questions I really wanted to know about is, okay, how do you answer this? Is 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 counsel for appellant uh, out of his gourd? What, what, what's going on here? I, I, I want to know about that. And didn't get that. Didn't get that question. So didn't get that answer. Not at I wanted all. to hear what their position was. So with that, we'll take our first break and We're back for segment two of episode 47 of the Podium and Panel podcast and talking about banks versus advocate. This is a single issue. There aren't many of these. A single issue medical malpractice appeal. Usually medical malpractice cases, you've got 75 issues, issues all over the all over the place. This one, you got one. So here's the issue. Is it proper to cross-examine the plaintiff's expert in a wrongful death case with regards to alleged fraud on 11 years of tax returns? That's the question. 
So here's what happened. The plaintiff's decedent, her husband, died of a heart attack about 12 hours after having seen this doctor. There is a dispute in the credibility, oh, a dispute as to what happened at that, at that appointment. This uh, deceased apparently had long-standing heart issues, and about a year before his death, had had an angiogram, and apparently that angiogram saved his life that, at that point. Uh, the plaintiff claimed that she and her husband had not been asked about giving having an angiogram. The doctor, defendant doctor, said, oh, yes, I did, and they declined the angiogram. So there was a, a he said, she said, quite literally, uh, about whether there was this, this request or this offer of an angiogram and whether it was turned down or not. So that's the frame of the question. There's also a dispute as to when these tax returns came up, came to be known to the defendants. The defendants said they got them the Sunday night before the plaintiff's expert was going to be de- be going to testify on Monday. The defend the plaintiff said on rebuttal, "The hell you did! You had them at the pl- at the at the expert's uh, deposition, uh, you know, many months before the trial. So what are you talking about? I don't know. I can't resolve that issue, but that's the issue, and that gets to one of the big questions in the case." about why didn't you ask the plaintiff herself? And the defendant's argument was, well, we didn't have the tax returns. Now, I want to leave the tax return stuff and how that works to Dan, because that's that's the area he knows far more about than I do. And, and I, I'd ask him to explain, Dan, I want you to explain that to us, what this issue is, cool. um, how these, these tax returns got filed and why they might have been fraudulent. Nobody was convicted of anything. The result of the trial seems to have been a verdict in favor of the plaintiff, but not as much as the uh, plaintiff wanted. And so they appealed. Their post-trial motion was denied uh, on the single issue of whether it was proper to allow this questioning that ch- uh, that the plaintiff's lawyer described as a bomb going off in the middle of his trial. And Justice Hyman described as, should we allow the bomb to proliferate? So with that, Dan, uh, why don't you tell us about this bomb and about the tax situation here uh, and give the listeners a little more color as, on this issue? Sure. So on, on your 1040 that we all file every year, or most of us file, uh, there's there's a, a series of different categories of what the taxpayer's status is of household. And the reason for that is the tax rates and and exemptions and things are different depending on if you're single, uh, head of household, which means you uh, have dependents, but you're not married. Uh, there's married fi- filing separately, which some uh, couples do for various reasons, you know, prenuptials, whatever. And then there's mar- married filed filing jointly. And again, the tax rates, the uh, limits and things all are different in the tax code and, and based on your taxable income your exemptions and things based upon which box you check. And in this case, for 11 years, as Pat mentioned, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the uh, Banks, Miss Banks, who was the uh, widow, and, and Mr. Banks uh, checked the box, head of household. Um, and the, and the which taxes if they were, were married, they couldn't do, apparently. Right. You can't do that. If you're married, you have to either file jointly or separately and or singly and uh, so separately. And so... Um, not clear why they did that. Uh, their allegation was that they, uh, uh, it was a mistake, right? A, 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 just a mistake. Who knows? Um, 
Presumably they happen. did it because they got a better tax rate. Right, I, right. That, that's what I'm thinking. Um, but but the first question and the only question that was really asked about the actual marriage status was of Miss Banks. And that was the first question asked of her on direct. You know, what's your marital which, status? Which would be an element of proving she had standing to bring the cause of action. Right, right. And she said married, right? And so uh, that was, uh, and that was not challenged or anything. And then as Pat said, this expert uh, gets on the stand. He's a, an economist. Uh, the uh, defense defendants allege that, uh, as Pat said, they got the uh, tax returns the Sunday before uh, cross-examination of this witness. Um, as Pat said on rebuttal, the appellant's uh, advocate said that's not true. This guy was deposed. He brought all of his records and all of his documents to his deposition, including said tax returns, so they would have known, you know, months or years ago because this case has been going on for some time. And so, a lot of lot of issues here. The what the 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 rule that, that that's brought into play here and that I want to read a bit is is uh, Rule Four Hundred Four, uh, which is the uh, character evidence not admissible to prove conduct, Illinois Rules of Evidence 404. And 404B talks about other crimes, wrongs, or acts. It says evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show action and conformity therewith, except as provided by certain uh, criminal codes. And so um, one, of, one of the things that uh, uh, this panel uh, was uh, our, our friends uh, uh, that we've talked about this panel that uh, is very active, uh, Justice Hyman, Justice Pierce, and Justice Walker. And, and uh, I, to, to say that Justice Hyman was lit on this uh, immediately, he was, uh, Karen DeGrand was arguing for a Pelly, and he just was not buying uh, anything that was going on here. Um, he, he, he just kept going uh, as soon as she started talking um he uh went into uh all all of the uh issues he knew the it. record as well as she did yeah and he, he thought better <laughs> yeah and, and he kept pressing over and over again where in the record does it say that the economist actually relied on the tax returns and so she would point out uh very uh pinpoint, she would say on page whatever of the record, it says that the economist reviewed the tax returns and he said, no, 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 no. What, where does it say that he relied upon the tax returns? And this went on over and over again, leading to his question about the, the bomb proliferating. And uh, uh, he, I, I put in my, in brackets at one point, uh, no matter what she was saying, uh, Justice Hyman was just not buying it. And uh, he was the he was the prime uh, interrogator of, of her, but uh, the other justices also uh, they popped got in, in act. And, and asked questions as well. And as Pat said, it's a, it's a little bit murky, but it it, it does seem that in this case, uh, Miss Banks actually won at the trial court level, but it's apparent that they thought there was prejudice in these questions, and that it uh, you know soiled the credibility of the. Uh, you know, of the, of the main witness. And so uh, it ended up being uh, a verdict that was not as potentially uh, rich as, as would have been expected. Um, the, the principal uh, argument by the 
by the appellant was, or sorry, appellee rather, was forfeiture. forfeiture. So why don't you tell us about that? That also didn't seem. This is where the proliferation comment came up from Justice from Justice Hyman. Why don't you tell us about the the uh, forfeiture argument that was advanced by the uh, appellee? You're talking about the in closing there was statements made, a statement, right. and, and they didn't wasn't they, objected you know, to. Wasn't objected to, and in fact, the plaintiff uh, in closing addressed the issue head on. Right. And Justice Hyman, you know, they said, "Well, DeGrand's comment was, well, you know, he he even addressed the issue." And Hyman's like, "Well, what was he supposed to do? He right. couldn't just let it sit there." And let it proliferate. He had to deal with the, the issue and say, you know, that's all beside the point and doesn't really deal with the issue. And and it, this is propensity evidence that's improper and all the rest. I mean, her point also was they didn't ask for a mistrial, right? Um, if it was, and we've talked about that several times on the show. Um, yeah, and and that's but that's when Walker uh, Justice Walker jumped in and said that look, we're all all three of us in this panel were trial judges. And they were in situations, and at some point, even without objections and other things, uh, we as judges on the on the bench can take judicial notice of the cumulative effect of these types of issues. And so, we have the ability to, you know, even without objections and things, you know, sitting here in the appellate court, we understand what you know what what the limits are. Uh, they certainly raised it in their post trial motion. They did. Uh, and because that was the post trial motion. And so the question is, did the court, the trial court abuse its discretion in failing to uh, grant a new trial in, in this circumstance uh, um, with regards to the or in response to the post trial motion? The other thing that the appellee argued was that the uh, plaintiffs could have recalled uh, Miss Banks to the stand and questioned her. And again, I, the justices were not buying that. They said, well, I mean, what's, why would they do that? Right? Why would you bring back the witness? And so um, I think well, that I think would carry weight. That would carry weight if the plaintiffs or strike that if the defendants are correct that they didn't have the tax returns until the Sunday before the expert was, then then that would be something. But right. if it were the case that the tax returns were available before the trial and they had the opportunity to question, the defense had the opportunity to question the plaintiff about them, well, then you should have asked her then. That was your chance, right. and you didn't, and you saved it for the expert who may or may not have relied upon these. Um, I, I, don't, I don't buy the... Um, the hair that Justice Hyman was splitting with regards to what he reviewed and what he relied on. Right. But it, he plainly wasn't wasn't going with, well, he didn't actually rely on the tax returns except to verify the income. Well, you got to, I mean, he's an economist. He's going to, he's got to look at the document says they are. And it right. called into question whether they were married or not. And there was the position of the defense that it turned into an issue of whether they were married or not. Once they had these documents that they claimed they didn't get until, you know, the middle of the trial, that then raised the question whether they were married, notwithstanding the judicial determination that in a other proceeding that she was the that she was the uh, uh, spouse, and the finding that had to happen in the law division case that she was the appropriate special representative. So, right. I, 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 I the timing I, of this is really going to be important of when they got these records. I think I think so too, and and uh, you know we'll we'll see when the opinion comes out because again. Uh, it was a tale of two worlds. If you listen to just the advocates, you know, an oral argument about timing and when these were available. So again, the uh, the justices will 
write their opinion based upon what they actually have in the record. And we'll see that. Yeah, we don't know what that what that looks like. There may they may have to be an evidentiary hearing on this topic. I have a hard. I mean, tax returns are able to be gotten on a forty. What's called a forty five oh six. I have a hard time believing they didn't have them, but it's possible they they didn't have them. Uh, right. It would have been a standard discovery request. In addition, so I I, I I don't know why they wouldn't have had them, but it's very possible they didn't. Uh, and if they didn't, then the question is when did they get them? So right. So with that, we'll take our our next break and come back with a short segment uh, with our predictions and a very interesting rule from Iowa. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 47 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. And as Pat said, it'll be a short one today because our record remains 46, 10, and 3. Uh, a reminder at times that justice is not swift. We've done over 100 cases on this uh, podcast, some going back to January, and there are still missing decisions from some of those things. So some courts well, are very missing. fast. They just well, haven't been found yet. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And as we've talked about, some districts are like are because all we are all legal positivists here. The law is out there somewhere; right. it just has to be found. It, it's it's right. all in the ether. There you go. So let's make predictions sure to go wrong for today. Only the two cases we've got: silver first. What do you think on silver? I I think that's going to get affirmed. Uh, again, we have some gaps in our knowledge, but I think it's going to be affirmed. I do too. From the from the oral argument and from uh, well, Justice Mikva. I'll say this: if Justice Mikva writes the opinion. It's going to be in a firm. Can't tell anything about what the other two justices thought. They may think she was all wet. So I don't know. Right. But right. The, only, the only information we have is from Justice Mikva because she's the only one that asks questions. And as per the usual arrangement, she asked a lot of them. Right. And then the second case, Banks? Uh, reversed. I think I, so, too. Yeah. And, and we have a bit more information because Justice Pierce asked a question that was not favorable to the, to the appellee. And Justice Walker made some comments that were not favorable to the appellee. And then we have Justice Hyman, who's already written his opinion. Right. right. So with that, what we're going to turn to the rule of the week. And as Pat mentioned, it's from our neighbor, Iowa. You know, Pat, we've discussed often the Indiana Supreme Court and how it first often decides whether to grant leave to appeal. Sometimes that's already been granted. But in many cases, uh, as the Chief Justice of Indiana says at the beginning, the first issue to consider today is whether to grant uh, leave. Uh, it turns grant out transfer. that grant transfer. Uh, it turns out Indiana is not the only state with a different way of doing things. Uh, you recently discovered in Iowa that all matters go to the Iowa Supreme Court on appeal. Their procedure guide uh, notes, and we'll include that in the comments to the podcast when when it's posted. It states that once a case file is ready, the Supreme Court decides whether to keep the case or transfer to the Court of Appeals. As a general proposition, cases which involve questions of the application of existing legal principles are transferred to the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court may decide to retain a case if it raises substantial constitutional questions or if it involves a substantial conflict with published Iowa opinion, a fundamental and urgent issue of broad public importance, 
or lawyer discipline, among other reasons. Pat, thoughts on this? So th- this is this is really uh, interesting. Uh, it is it is the case in every civil system I'm aware of in America that you have one right to appeal, and so you have some states like Nevada that don't have an intermediate court of review. Uh, everything goes to the Supreme Court, uh, and so they're they're a busy group of justices. Uh, you uh, then have uh, other state, and then you have uh, most other states have an intermediate court of review. And that's where your appeal as of right goes, as it does in Indiana, as it does in Illinois, in the federal system. Your right to review is to the circuit courts, whether it's one of the, you know, the Seventh Circuit, if you're here in Illinois, or one of the other circuits, depending upon where you stand. And then then discretionary appeal is left to the highest court, whether that's the Supreme Court, what have you. Indiana, or Iowa rather, everything goes to the Supreme Court and they they sort out the wheat from the chaff. And then send it back to the appellate court on the things that they don't find so interesting. I have to imagine, unless they're gluttons for punishment, that they send most of the chaff uh, to the to the appellate court, and they keep some of the wheat for themselves. Uh, but everything you get a right to appeal. It's just a question of what is what it is. Another thing that's you listed in that list, Dan, you had it raises substantial constitutional questions, and that's another distinction with with Illinois. In Illinois. If a statute is held uh, unconstitutional, then it is immediately appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court. You you skip the intermediate level of review. You go right to the Illinois Supreme Court. That's only where the statute is struck down. If the statute is affirmed, an appeal can be taken, whether it's on a 304 or a 308 or some sort of interlocutory appeal, to an intermediate court of review, which then can get to the Supreme Court. But the appeal as of right goes directly to the Illinois Supreme Court in a situation where a district or circuit court rather strikes down a statute. So the most recent example I can think of that is the Kakos versus Butler case, the six-person jury case, where Judge Gomolinsky, now retired uh, in in the Circuit Court of Cook County, struck down the six-person jury uh, statute, and the case went directly to the Illinois Supreme Court. So that's another distinction with how things work between Illinois uh, in uh, Iowa, as it turns out, uh, in, in that regard, uh, this would go. This kind of a thing would go directly to the Iowa Supreme Court, and they would decide whether to take it or have the have the intermediate court review take a look at it, and then they would have discretion thereafter whether to hear it, uh, whether to hear it again. So, very interesting. Uh, many ways to, to do to, to do appellate procedure. That there are, and, and some seem like they're uh, more utilizing scarce resources, but uh, again, maybe, maybe it, it works and I'm sure you know, I have to imagine given the size of Iowa's pop, there may not be that may not be many. And so it's not, whereas a state like Illinois where everyone loves to sue and there's lots of suing going on right. uh, the, you know, they, they, they're going through hundreds of PLAs four times, four or five times a year. So they're are looking, they're wading through a couple thousand, that may be more than Iowa and Indiana get in a year combined, uh, right. just based upon the size of the state, as well as the commercial center of Chicago creating tremendous amounts of, of all manner of, of business litigation and other kinds of litigation. So, yep. and crime. So lots of, lots of, lots of uh, criminal appeals too. Don't forget that. There's a whole other side we don't talk about much on this podcast uh, right. of criminal appeals. The, the very far, far, far fewer than there used to be when they had that when we had the death penalty in Illinois. 
but uh, still many, many criminal appeals uh, in Illinois because lots and lots of people doing things that they're not supposed to do. For sure. So with that, uh, we're done for this week, and we'll be back with uh, at least one regular episode next week, we hope, if uh, the appellate courts uh, get some arguments done. Uh, the Seventh Circuit at least heard some arguments this week, but none of them, all, all of them were criminal with the exception of one, which was a Social Security Administration case, which I don't know anything about and not very interested in. So uh, we'll see uh, if if uh, Illinois appellate courts have any other arguments or if we have uh, uh, some more from the Seventh Circuit. Uh, we're not looking at uh, oral arguments in Indiana for another month, it seems. Uh, so we've got a little time there. So with that, I uh, hope everybody has a great week and we'll see everybody uh, next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.